And so would you turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. So we've spent several weeks considering the glorious supremacy of Christ over all things and his sufficiency to save you forever. And we're at that point now as we conclude chapter 1 in this series on the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. We're at that point of asking, okay, so he's glorious. He's supreme. He's sufficient. Now what? So what? What's this this to do with our lives? What difference should these truths about Christ make in our life? How is knowing this the key to our growth as Christians? Well, last week we looked at the first effect that Christ's supremacy and sufficiency should have on our lives. You're compelled to serve Christ. Seeing the glorious supremacy and and the complete sufficiency of Christ, it compels you to serve His people joyfully and faithfully. So the Gospel is about the revelation of the glorious person of Christ who has exhibited infinite love and infinite mercy and power towards you by reconciling you completely to God through His death. And if you know Him this way, then you will serve Him like Paul did. And Christ will sustain you like he sustained Paul. And this morning, as we close out this series, we see the second effect. You're constrained to proclaim him. Because he is gloriously supreme and sufficient, you are constrained to proclaim him. So let's read our text together, and then we'll pray. Look at verse 28, chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. O Father, as we come before You, we acknowledge our need of You. We need You to complete us, and You are sufficient to do this. And we are thankful that through the Scriptures, as we sang, You are shown to us. You are proclaimed. That's the goal of preaching. To show Christ and proclaim Him because He completes us. He makes us whole. God, we lift up Richard and his family as his grandmother went to be with the Lord today. We mourn with him, but not as those without hope. Lord, to comfort and encourage him, our brother. And Lord, speak to us through your word today in Jesus' name. Amen. So from this text, verses 28 and 29, I hope that each of us will receive what Paul is making so very clear in these two verses. That knowing the glorious supremacy and complete sufficiency of Christ, it constrains you to proclaim Him as all the believer. Christ is all that the believer needs. And so from these two verses, I want to give you four applications that can transform your life. If you receive what he's saying here, this can transform your life. You need to realize that Christ can complete you. 
We're going to talk about what that means. Secondly, proclaim Christ's sufficiency to complete every man. Thirdly, make conformity to Christ your goal. And fourth, labor to proclaim Christ in the power that He supplies. We'll walk through each one of those. Okay. So up to this point, I've referenced the sufficiency of Christ in relation to His ability to reconcile you completely to Christ and thus to to save you forever. But Christ's sufficiency extends beyond reconciliation to all of life, to all the issues, to all the problems that we face. Paul preached Christ because he alone is sufficient, as he says here in verse 28, to make every, or 29, to make every, no, 28, to make every man complete in Christ. And Paul is is writing to believers. He's writing to Christians here. So he's not speaking in this moment, he's not speaking evangelistically. He's not... He's not relating being complete to getting saved. Because he's talking to those who are already saved. And so he's speaking here to you. He's speaking to me as those who have already trusted in Christ to save them. And he wants you to realize something vital that's vital to your life. Christ is able to complete you. Christ lives in you, right? As he just got done saying, Christ in you the hope of glory, you don't need something in addition to Him to be complete, to be godly, to be a Christ-like person. And so Paul is talking about spiritual maturity here. He's talking about soundness as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. So let me take you to another passage briefly here where Paul says something very similar. I want you to see that this is what he preached. This is what he preached about Christ and what He can do. We're going to be back here in just a second, but look at Romans chapter 16 as he's closing out this book. Look at how he praises Christ at the end of this this incredible letter, the book of Romans. He says in verse 25, chapter 16, verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able, that means he has the power, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. What is he saying here? Christ is able to establish you. The word means to make firm, to stabilize, right? Through the gospel, Christ makes the unstable stable. Through the gospel, Christ makes the unstable stable. We, have, we all have areas of our life need establishing. We know we're not as we need to be. And for this purpose, Paul preaches Christ to them. Why? Because he's able to establish every man. This is why we preach Christ, not only for the salvation of the non-believer, but also to his people. Because he is who they need to be stable and strong. They need to learn of Him. They need to learn about Him so that they'll see how He can complete every single area of our lives. We need Christ not only to be justified, we need Christ to be established. So to receive what Paul is saying here is, first of all, it's to realize that Christ can complete you. 
You need to realize that Christ can complete you. He says back in Colossians, jump back there, and he says, we proclaim Him, meaning we proclaim Christ, so that every man, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So So to say that Christ can complete you is indirectly stating something about us, isn't it? Apart from Christ, you are incomplete. You are unable in varying ways and to varying degrees. And so first, you need to see your incompleteness in yourself. See your incompleteness. But whatever your incompleteness, whatever your needs, Christ can deal with that. He can make you complete. That's what He's saying here. We've all got issues. Every one of us. Each of us has our deficiencies. None of us are complete in ourselves. And throughout the Scriptures, we read description after description of all the ways that we are not what we ought to be. Many of those verses they are describing our state prior to salvation. Ah, but we know by experience, don't we? Don't we, Christians? We know to be saved doesn't mean that we still can't act according to our old ways. The sinfulness of our fallen nature It extends to all the areas of our lives. Our our hearts, they don't feel what they should feel. Our desires long for things that God hates. And so we struggle with anger. We struggle with bitterness. We struggle with envy and covetousness and vengeance and pride and depression. And as believers, many times we we find ourselves, like the Apostle Paul, we, we find ourselves stunned at the depths of our own depravity. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from this body of death? And then Paul responds to his own cry with the same encouragement that we all need to be reminded of so often. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ sets the believer free. Through Christ, you are free now. We're free from what? free from bondage to sin and to death. Sin is no longer your master. But you often do still what it says, don't you? You still feel the temptation. But through Christ, you're able to resist. But we don't always resist. We get captured. And and sin, it's still so easily entangles us. We used to be in bondage. We used to be a slave to sin. We were unable not to sin. But Christ saved us. He set us free from that bondage in the sense that we still face temptation, even from within our own hearts. We still feel that. But now, we are able not to sin. We've been set free. The temptation's still there, but we can resist it. 
in the strength that Christ provides. We are able not to sin. But the day is coming when we will be totally free. Not just from bondage to sin, but even its temptation. And then in that day, we will be unable to sin. What a glorious day that will be. Unable to sin. And so, right now, in Christ, even, we still have need. We all have need. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Peter and Paul seem to be saying much the same thing. We have everything we need to live godly lives in Christ. Peter says the resources that you and I need, they come, what? They come from a full understanding of a true knowledge of Christ. That's the same thing Paul is telling us. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Whatever our incompleteness, whatever our lack, whatever our need, Christ can deal with that. And He's able to make you complete. And so when you see your incompleteness in yourself, you don't need to despair, Christian. It's still there. But your heart can actually be encouraged by the truth about who Christ is and how He can complete you. So secondly, I want you to be encouraged by Christ's glorious sufficiency. Be encouraged by Christ's glorious sufficiency. Paul's goal in his preaching to the Colossians, it was to show them the sufficiency of Christ, not only to reconcile them to God, but to complete them in any and all ways that they are still incomplete. Christ is all you need to be complete. And if we, if we keep going on in Paul's letter here, and on into chapter 2, we see that this is something that he wants their hearts to be encouraged by. He talks about, about how showing Christ's power to complete them is something that he, he labors for, right, in verse 29. And then on into verse chapter 2, look at what he says in verse 2. He says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself. See, Paul wants them to have a true understanding of who Christ is because of what comes from it. It's, a, it's the full assurance of understanding. And the word here for understanding, it refers to applying biblical principles to everyday life. And so the clearer you are on who Christ is, the better you know how to live godly and wisely in this world. And so in the context of all that Paul has been saying, the more that you see the glorious supremacy of Christ as God over all things, the more you see His absolute sufficiency to save you forever, the better you will know how to live as a sinner in a fallen world. We all need this kind of encouragement, don't we? I need to know that because of, because of, Christ, of Christ. I, I, I'm not what I once was. Because of what He's done, I'm not what I once was. 
I also need to know that even though I am not what I will be, in Christ I'm being made complete. In His infinite sufficiency, I have all I need to be whole. And you will find this sufficiency only in the glorious person of Christ. And so for this reason, He warns them. He gives them a warning. Thirdly, you need to beware of those who say Christ is not enough. Beware of those who say Christ is not enough. And this is where he goes with this in the rest of chapter 2. And I thought this was so worth seeing. Paul needs to warn them because there are some amongst them, they're going around saying essentially in the, in the church and in the region, they're going around saying Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. There's always people <clears throat> in Christian churches who want you to think that Christ is not enough. It's true today. They're in churches. They're accessible to Christians today through various avenues such as podcasts and YouTube channels. And, and they're peddling the same lies about Christ today as these false teachers did in Paul's day. Christ is not enough. He's not enough for you. But Paul is trying to equip them to see their persuasive arguments. Look at verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Look out, Paul says. Look out. Their goal is to lead you astray with erroneous arguments, with persuasive rhetoric. And their tactic never changes. Here's what they do. They deny Christ's supremacy as God. They deny Christ's sufficiency to save forever. They deny Christ's sufficiency to sanctify you. See, all the truths that Paul just got done telling them in chapter 1. Did you notice the common theme amongst all, the, all these things that they do? And I'll show you, this is what they do. What's the common theme? Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough. See, because these false teachers have access to Christians, and they can prey upon unwary Naive Christians, what does Paul say to do? Look at verse 6 and 7 in chapter 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Christ, in Him, established in your faith in Christ, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See, remember how overjoyed and how thankful you were to understand that Christ was God in human flesh, and yet at the same time, no less God. He was still the uncreated creator of all things, and all things were made through Him, and all things were made for Him, and then through the death that He died in His body that He took on so that He could die for you, through that death He reconciled you completely to God in order what? He says to present you one day as holy and blameless and beyond reproach, right? He can save you forever. And as you know, this is true because, see, you continue firm in the faith. You're steadfast. You're unmoved. Ah, but, but, if you listen to these men, if you listen to these men who deny these glorious truths about Christ, you may find yourself being moved away from the hope of the gospel. Maybe Christ isn't. 
Maybe Christ can't save me forever. What's next? Maybe he's not enough. What's next? Maybe there are things that I need to do in order to be saved, in order to stay saved. See, that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Their goal is to take you captive. The word means kidnap. They're going to kidnap you. That's the idea. And we know that this is the focus of this false teaching. It's about the person of Christ. Why? Because look at what he does in the next verse. He reasserts the deity of Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him you have been made complete. This is the two things that he's been emphasizing. And he says, watch out for these people. They're going to say that Christ is not enough. But in him is fullness of deity. And in him he can make it complete. He's head over all. See, being ignorant of who Christ is, it leaves you vulnerable to becoming a captive of some spiritual predator with false doctrine that at its core denies the supremacy of Christ as God and His sufficiency to complete you. And he explains what he, what, uh, that the means that they use, it's philosophy, it's empty deception. See, they come after you with some type of assertion about God or about Christ that sounds learned, sounds wise, but it's not what it appears to be. It sounds good. Sounds profoundly religious because you hear a whole lot of the Bible, but there's no value in it. Paul says it comes from two sources the traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world. So just because people have said something about God for centuries doesn't make it true. Tradition can simply be error passed on from one generation to the next. Scripture, not tradition is what we adhere to. Sola fide. Only faith. Sola scriptura. Only scripture. Those were the cries of the Reformation. Brought us out of the dark ages. By this phrase, elementary principles, Paul may simply be saying that to accept such false beliefs about Christ, it's to regress from the mature teachings of Scripture to something that is childish, immature. I like the way MacArthur puts it. He says, to abandon these biblical principles about Christ, His supremacy, His glory, that He is God, right? You abandon those principles and those understandings about Christ, and you abandon Him for empty philosophy? He says, you know what that's like? That's like going back to kindergarten after you got your doctorate. How does Paul say you're going to recognize these peddlers of philosophy and empty deception? You identify them because they're not into Christ. They're into externals. Look at verse 16. It says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Right? So here's what they do. And here's how they get you. They measure godliness by external practices. They say, 
You can't eat certain foods. Look what it says here in the Bible. Name some foods. You can't eat those foods. You need to keep the law. You need to honor the Sabbath day. But what does Paul say in verse 17? Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. He points it right back to Christ. He's what you need. Not these external things. See, you're going, you're regressing. You're going back to kindergarten thinking that the Sabbath is more important than Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. See, if you want to keep the Sabbath day, you know, you go ahead. More power to you if you want to keep the Sabbath day. You're free to do so. But the person who says that keeping the Sabbath day gives you some kind of a favor or a credit or a merit with God, well, you know what he's doing? He's taking you captive through philosophy and empty deception. That's what he's doing. Don't let them do that. You're going back to kindergarten. You're eating baby food when you should be eating solid, mature meat. But see, you've abandoned Christ. You've let yourself be drawn away. You've listened to their lies that Christ is not enough. That His death and what is accomplished, it didn't save you forever. Now what will be the result if you keep listening to their tasty lies? Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. So you're only doing going down this road that you are guaranteed to regret because you, he says here, you're not holding fast to Christ, the head. You've traded truth about Christ For the commandments and the teachings of men, verse 22. You're submitting yourself to decrees of men, verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then he says, these are matters, verse 23, which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. Boy, you sure look good. You sure look holy. Because look at all the things you don't do. You know, if you measure your holiness by what the things that you don't do, look out. All your list of holiness is all the things I don't do. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't go with girls who do. How many times have I said that in this thing? I don't know why that sticks in my head, but it does. That's your measure of holiness you don't understand. Holiness is living for God in every area of your life. It's not just not doing certain things. These things have the appearance of wisdom. And look what he says there, verse 23. Self-made religion. Self-abasement. Severe treatment of the body. Oh, but what did he say? They're of no value against fleshly indulgence. These will do nothing for you. They will do nothing for you. They don't make you more holy. They make you feel more holy, but they don't make you more holy. You'll never they'll never change you. They'll they'll never make you more like Christ. See, because only Christ can make you more like Christ. Because He's glorious in His supremacy as God. Only a Christ who is equal with God and who possesses all the attributes of God to the same degree as God. Only a Christ who never changes in His attributes because He is God. Only He can change you. This is what we all need to realize. That's where it begins. You need to realize that Christ can complete you. 
Because if you don't realize that Christ can complete you, you'll never proclaim him. You'll proclaim something else. Because you don't realize that Christ is all you need. So you'll proclaim something else. But those who do realize that Christ can complete them, secondly, this is the second main application, they will proclaim Christ's sufficiency to complete every man. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. We're all incomplete. But what you need is Christ. That's what you'll be proclaiming. Because you've learned it yourself. I've seen Christ complete me. He's not done with me yet. Oh, but the more I get of Christ, the more He works in me and the more He completes me. So Paul talks about how he has been proclaiming Christ to them. He says, we proclaim Him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. Often fads arise in the church. A fad is just a short-lived fashion. Something that's very popular, but, but only for a brief time. They are doctrines, usually doctrines of men, and they just blow through the body of Christ. And Christians like to get excited about the latest thing in the church. And they run around. They, they follow after it like it's the most amazing thing, only to find out that in a year or so, everybody's done with it, moved on, forgotten about it. You know, that was last year. We've moved on to the next big thing about Jesus and about church. Think of some of the trends. And I was just trying to come up with some. You may have some that, that, that stand out to you. Think of the trends and the fads that have blown through, captured the fascination of the evangelical church in the past decade or so, uh, but now they're passe. The prayer of Jabez. Seeker-sensitive models of church. Purpose-driven models of church. Emergent church. The purity movement. Megachurch pastors becoming the Christian equivalent of life coaches. How well has that gone? What a reproach upon the church some pastors have been if they get so caught up in themselves. These are just a few things that have come and gone and good riddance to them. Right? They, they, they may have been, there may have been some good in them. But my point is that these fads caught the attention of the evangelical church. And during their season, it was all you heard about. It was all you read about. But where are these things now? Is anyone still buying books about the prayer of Jabez? Have you already got rid of yours? Sold it on eBay? Given it to Goodwill? One of the ways that God breaks His people from their fascination with fads is He allows trials. It's at those times that you, those difficult times, that you realize what is reliable, what is trustworthy, and what isn't. I remember as a little boy, probably five years old, we're up in northern Idaho at our, in, in our family cabin, and we go to visit a friend who lived, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes away. We walk through the forest on the, on the roads over to this cabin, and we stay there for a long time. And by the time we're leaving, it's totally dark. It's pitch dark outside. I'm five years old. And all I remember thinking was, how in the world are we going to find our way through these woods back to our cabin? My dad, though, he was not the slightest bit afraid. He knew those woods like the back of his hand. He could probably get us home blindfolded. No exaggeration. 
And so here I am. I'm five years old. I am scared witless. Enough to remember it 50 years later and be telling to you now. I mean, that's the impression it made upon me. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm small, right? So I'm holding both parents' hands. My eyes are wide open, and I'm walking through this forest, and I'm talking to my dad. Dad, how are we going to get home? How are we going to get back to the cabin? And my dad just kept it light. He said, you know what? We'll just follow our toes. I remember. That's exactly what he said. That's a quote. Stuff is etched in my mind. And what seemed like hours, we finally walked up the steps to the cabin. Probably took about 15 minutes. That's all. It was scary. Definitely. But see, I believed my dad would get us there. He would handle any monster. My dad's old now. Probably why I'm tearing up. He has dementia. Beginning stage. He's still there. He's still there completely. He could handle whatever came. And I knew that. And my point here is that See, when trials come your way, fads won't help you. Principles won't rescue you. If my dad had brought out a map and said, okay, here, son, here's where we are. Here's where we're going. We're just going to follow this path. I would have been like, how are we going to get home? See, I didn't need a map. I needed a person. I needed a person. A person who's able to help you and rescue you and guide you. And that's why Paul preaches Christ. He preaches Christ to them. He's able. He can bring you through anything. He can complete you. And when Christ brings you through some trial or some significant challenge that He has allowed, you want others to know He is who you need. Christ is who you need. See, has God convinced you of this yet? Or are you still waiting for the next fact and think this is, this is what's missing? Wow, it took over 2,000 years for this to finally show up. Six months later, you want to remember what it was. Christ completes you, though. Christ does. Have you had something that's com- com- convinced you of, of this? That He is all you need. He alone can complete you. He can make you whole. You may find something helpful in other places. I'm not saying that there's not some benefit there, but nothing compares to Christ. It's His voice that we long to hear. It's His words that calm the storm. It's it's His word that lights your path. It's Christ that you need. Not fads, not trends, not principles, not philosophies. Only Christ. And so, what are you going to tell others when they're struggling? Are you going to pray the prayer of Jabez over them? No. Are you going to give them five principles to defeating your personal Goliaths? I hope not. No, you're going to tell them about the only one who was able to help them because he helped you. Now, Paul tells us how he proclaims Christ. He says, admonishing and teaching about Christ. (laughs) That's the whole context. It's not just admonishing in general and teaching in general. It's about Christ. So first, we are all to admonish and teach others about Christ. Admonition involves warning, counseling someone in terms of their behavior. So when you see some specific area of lack 
in a person's life, you admonish them. How? You remind them. You stir them. You challenge them from the Word of Christ. You lead them away from sin and away from disbelief and towards righteousness and faith. And so this is something that we are all to do for one another. This is what it means to be in a church and why you join a church. Because this is where that takes place, the admonishing and the teaching. This is what Paul says in in chapter 3, verse 16 of Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. See, that's what we're to do for each other. Teaching, it just is imparting truth about Christ, who He is, what He's done. So we're to teach one another about the attributes of Christ, His perfections, His faithfulness, His sufficiency, His person. And it's not for the sake of more knowledge so that you can trust Him. So you can rely on Him. So you can look to Him. He's a person. He's not a principle. He's not just something out there. He's a person. He came. He revealed Himself. He came. He died. He rose again. He's returned to heaven. But He's still Christ. He's still the Lord Jesus Christ. And He is who you need. He'll guide you. He'll be with you. Isn't that what He says? Even through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Not some principle, not some fad. I'll be with you. But it's not just that we all needed to admonish and teach others about Christ. We all need to be admonished and taught about Christ. See, it's not just you giving it this direction. You need to receive this as well. We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man. You see His emphasis here? Everyone. There's nobody that doesn't need this. Nobody. There's no one who doesn't become vulnerable to sin. There's no one who doesn't need to be warned. We can all get sidetracked. And we need our faith stirred up. You know, this is one of the reasons why we have home fellowship groups. This is why we come together every week. We need this. Every one of us needs to be admonished and reminded about Christ. We need to be warned about sin. We need our faith in Christ and His promises strengthened. Are you plugged into a home fellowship group? If not... Can you see that you need to be? It's dangerous. Now, how do we proclaim Christ in this way? Paul gives us great examples of how he admonished and taught, and we're going to walk through a couple of them briefly here. So, thirdly, we want to follow Paul's example of proclaiming Christ. Follow. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. So we can see an example of Paul proclaiming Christ. Philippians chapter 2, famous passage. Uh, He has a whole lot to say in Philippians. And Paul wants to talk to them about, first of all, about humility and about selfishness. So how does he go about it? He preaches Christ to them. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, no one, no one demonstrated greater humility than Christ, who is equal with God. He possessed all the attributes of God to the same degree as God. And this word here... Form, form of God, it refers 
to an outward display of what is true inwardly. So he's saying he was displaying outwardly what he was, God, form of God. And this is prior to the incarnation, right? Christ was outwardly displaying the glory of who he was as God. This would be before he came to earth. But for our sakes, Paul says he emptied himself. And in this he's referring to the incarnation. He became a man. He exchanged, so to speak, the outward displaying of his glory as God, his form, to outwardly display a different form. What is the other form that he took upon? A bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. So he's speaking about the incarnation. Christ is no less God as man. As a man, he is no less God, but clearly. But he willingly emptied himself of the display of his deity to instead display his humanity. He humbled himself even further, he says, by his obedience to death, and he says, even death on a cross, the most shameful of deaths. We want to talk about humility? I'm going to tell you about Christ. See what he's doing? So Paul's emphasis here is not so much about what he, you know, what he did. It's about who he is. Even as a man, Christ is God. He never changes because God never changes. So now look at what he goes from here. He's preached Christ to them. And so he admonishes them now in several ways in the rest of the letter by continuing to preach Christ to them. So first, as we see right here, have this attitude in yourselves. It was in Christ. He's talking about humility. Paul learned humility from Christ's own example of, of him humbling himself. Now jump over to chapter 4. This is just skipping along. There's a lot we could pause on, but of course we don't have time to do that. So look at chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why should you not be anxious for anything? Because Christ is near you. Christ is near you. You can bring all your cares, all your concerns to Him. You're bringing those concerns to a person, the glorious person of God. And you might not understand why things are the way they are. You might be struggling to accept the way that, that your situation is, but you know that He is good. You know that He does good. You know you can trust Him. And so you humbly and you gratefully pour out your heart. You acknowledge His wisdom. You acknowledge His sovereignty over you. And knowing that Christ, He says after that, He says He promises you His peace. It's not just any peace, and it's definitely not the world's peace. It's Christ's peace that he wants to give to you. This is how Paul preached Christ to them. Look at uh, verse 10 in chapter 4. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. So Paul's not complete, is he? He had to learn contentment. That means he wasn't content, but he had to learn how to be content. God had to teach him what it means to be content. And so Paul's thankful for the gift that they gave to him. But he makes sure they understand, I, I wasn't desperate. Christ has taught me how to be complete. How is it possible to be content amidst the, the circumstances that we know Paul was in at times? In prison, being whipped and beaten and stoned nearly to death. How could you say you are content, Paul? Look at verse 13. Christ gave him the power. 
I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's Christ. Through Him, through a person, through the glorious person of Christ, I've learned to be content. It's Christ I need. Your gift is great, but it's Christ who satisfies me and completes me. Look at verse 17. The Philippians sent Paul this care package, and he's grateful for it. He's making sure they understand, no, God's my provider. He's your provider, too. You know what? Look at what he says. In, in, he says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, he is not meager. He's generous. And Paul says, says his God, whom he's come to know, who has taught him how to be content, and he's trusted him to supply every single need he's had. He says, that same, that same glorious person will supply all your needs, too according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Christ is our good shepherd. And with Him, we, He says, we shall not want His faith. So do you see how Paul can't talk about anxiety without talking about Christ? He can't talk about contentment without talking about Christ. He can't talk about provision without talking about Christ. You know, when we are in a bad way, when we are anxious, when we are discontent, when we are fearful, it's not principles that we need. We need a person. We need Christ. He is all who we need. How much truer in the troubles that seem beyond your ability to endure. Everything that you need is in Christ. He's powerful. He's generous. He's faithful. He's able to give you let me show you just a couple more examples of how Paul admonishes believers by preaching Christ to them. Jump over to back to Ephesians, just uh, chapter 4. Here's where he starts getting practical. He says, chapter 4, verse 30, he says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Look at that end. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, he's preaching Christ to them. When you are tempted to think, you can't forgive. I can't forgive him. I can't forgive him. You know what he did to me? Paul says, remember Christ? He forgave you. You think you have been sinned more? against by this person, then you have sinned against Christ. He forgave you. Look at the pain Christ suffered for you so that you would be forgiven. You can forgive. Look at chapter 5. Verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, when you're tempted to withhold love from someone... What does Paul, what Paul have you do? Look to Christ. He loved you when you were utterly unlovable. You were a rebel against Him. You used His name as a curse word. You wanted nothing to do with Him. And yet He loved you. He came. He sought you. He found you. He drew you. And then He sacrificed Himself for you. Don't tell me you can't love someone. You look to Christ. He'll enable you to love 
So from these examples, you, you begin to see that Paul presupposes we are not complete. We are not complete in our character. We still have plenty of growing to do. And when is this need for growth and maturing and completing? When is it made most obvious to us? When trouble shows up. That's when we see it most. When the money's not there, when you have been wronged, when you have been denied something that you want, when you or something that you cherish is threatened. See, when such things happen, you become a different person. You panic. You despair. You get angry. You get anxious. That's your incompleteness. That's my incompleteness. And it's on display. And Christ can complete you. You know, this this helps us see that verse that we all hate someone to quote to us when we're in a trial. Consider it all joy, my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, this is Christ loving you and not wanting you to remain incomplete, unstable, unestablished. I want you to grow. Going through trials and having your trust in God tested, it produces endurance. And that helps you to be stable in an unstable world. The Lord brings you through these things. Why? So that He can complete you. And this is what you're going to do when He completes you. You're going to proclaim Him to others. He's sufficient to complete every man, you and anybody else, in their incompleteness. Now, Paul tells us what his goal is in all his preaching of Christ. So that every man, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says the same thing elsewhere in Romans 8.29. He says, for those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's, your, that's, that's where you're headed. Conformity to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So Paul's goal in preaching Christ is conformity to Christ. That must be our goal as well. So the... Is this third or fourth? Where am I? Third. Third application. Make conformity to Christ the goal. Make conformity to Christ the goal. There's two primary examples of Christ that we should expect to see in us. Here's the two main big ones. Love for God's people and love for God's glory. See, the first is love for God's people. Listen to Jesus, a new commandment I give to you. This is John 13. Love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does it mean to love others like Christ has loved us? Just just open up your Bibles to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's patience. It's kindness. It's it's not jealous. It doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. And that kind of love, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what it means to love like Christ. And the more you see such love coming from you, the more reason to rejoice Christ is making you complete. The other, the first is love for 
God's people. The second is love for God's glory. Again, Jesus says in John 12, verse 27, he says, Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What compelled Christ to go to the cross? It was a love for God's glory. And he, is, he was driven to glorify his Father. And these are the things that you want to see in yourself to know that Christ is completing you. A love for others and a love for, a love for God's people and a love for God's glory. When you see that as, as how you're living, you know Christ is at work in you. He's completing you. So proclaiming Christ, even to believers, is not easy. Paul calls it labor. It's a word that means to work to the point of exhaustion. And Paul admits it's too much for him in his own strength. But he's constrained to proclaim this glorious Christ. He knows that God will supply all the power that he needs. Verse 29, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. See, following Paul's example, this is our final, this is our final application. It's to labor to proclaim Christ in the power of God's And I'm speaking to all of us here. We all are called to this, to labor to proclaim Christ in the power God supplies. What's the motivation? Christ, you see your incompleteness, and you see how Christ completes you, and so you're going to proclaim Him. And you're going to make conformity to Christ your goal, and even in your exhaustion, you're going to seek to do it, because you know this is more valuable than anything else. This is what you need. This is what everyone needs. He's able to complete every man. So that's why you labor at this. Doesn't that lead you to wonder, why don't I labor? Why do I peter out really quickly? Why, why do so many things seem to get in the way of me serving? Kids' sports schedules, my own schedule, filled, packed with all kinds of things and hobbies and all kinds of things that I'm doing. And then along comes an opportunity to serve. It's like, I just don't have time. I just don't have energy. Maybe it's because you, you don't see how Christ has completed you. You're not looking to Christ to complete you. You're looking to principles. You're looking to fads. You get a little burst of energy like a sugar rush. And then you move on. But you're not, you're not tasting Christ. You're not letting Him fill you and complete you. And so that's why you're not proclaiming Him. You're letting other things be more important to you. What could be more important than to be made complete in Christ and when you know that, you want others to be complete in Christ. What? Does the wind just need to blow? And then you don't need to serve? Oh, too difficult for me to serve. Too much going on. Too much going on. Don't have time for this. Look at how much you need Him. Do you see how much you need Him? If you see that, then you'll see how much others need Him. And you will labor in this ministry. You will work hard at discipleship. You will work hard at teaching. You will work hard at coming alongside others and serving others. That will be your goal because you want them to see what Christ has done in you and He can do it for them too. See, knowing the glorious supremacy and the complete sufficiency of Christ, it constrains you. It constrains you to proclaim Him as all the believer needs. Let's Father, thank You for showing us what we need to see. You've shown us Christ. 
Oh, I pray that, that you would show your people, even through troubled times, that you're all they need. Maybe that's what it takes, God, that we would go through something difficult to see how you are all we need, that you are sufficient. None of us likes to pray prayers like this. We get worried. Maybe that's what is needed, God. To come to this wonderful, fulfilling knowledge that if we have you, we have all we need. We don't need all the other things, all the other activities, all the other distractions. We need Christ so that we will proclaim you as our brothers and sisters need to hear. We'll point others to Christ and his complete sufficiency. We'll bow before you as God. We know that this world is not all there is. Oh, work. Pray in Jesus.